Please turn to the New Testament book of Matthew, the New Testament book of Matthew, and if you would turn uh, to chapter 3, so Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. If you'd skip down to verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. If you are new with us this morning, we're so glad you are here. We are in a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew where we are looking at some of the key events in the life of Jesus. And this morning we come to that pivotal event in Jesus' life where Jesus is baptized. Now, if you are new with us, or maybe you've kind of only been around a few months, uh, the Lord has really been working in some tremendous ways in the life of our church. Over the last 12 months or so, we've had nearly 90 baptisms. And I share that not to kind of promote us, but to promote what the Lord has done. It's been so wonderful to see. We've seen children being baptized all the way up to about an 85-year-old, I think. And so it's just uh, been amazing to see from children to someone in their 80s and everybody in between how the Lord is faithful and bringing people to that moment where they trust in Him as their Lord and Savior and take that important step of baptism. And it's been amazing to be part of that in our own church, but uh, I've, I've talked to other pastors, I've seen things online, and, and they are also experiencing some very similar things, which really does my soul some good when we think of how much uh, in our culture is so dark, it's so chaotic, so uncertain. If you're like me, it can kind of depress you at times, just weigh on you, but yet the Lord is faithful. And it seems that in this very dark time, and it is a dark time, that the Lord's light is shining and he is working and he is drawing people to himself so they repent, believe, and are baptized. And one of the great privileges that I get to do is to perform the baptism. And, and one of the, the, the things I love is, is actually doing the baptism, but what's exciting is kind of what happens before. You know, like with Jacob, for example, he was so excited uh, to be baptized. And so there's nerves and there's excitement uh, there's some anxiety, but, but they're ready to go. And so it's, it's a very great privilege for myself to be back there and to experience that. I share with them, I'm nervous too. You think you're nervous? I'm nervous to do this. This is an exciting time. Now, if you're not a, a Christian, maybe you're not yet a, a follower of Jesus, you see all this taking place. Maybe you've been checking out our church the last few months. And again, we're, we're glad you're here. And you see this and it seems so exciting that's a little odd, right? I mean, we're taking somebody and we're putting them underwater and then thankfully we bring them back up. Maybe you're wondering if that would happen. 
And you're saying, this seems so exciting. Everybody's happy. Everybody's clapping. But what is going on? Kind of a weird deal. So that may be one question. Another question may be this. You're, you've been a Christian maybe for a number of months, maybe even a number of years. And you've come to the passage about Jesus' baptism. And you're like, why does Jesus need to be baptized? I mean, baptism is for somebody that is going under that water. It's this picture of their sins being washed away, that they're being made new. Why would Jesus, the perfect one, the one without sin, why would he need to be baptized? And so what kind of those two questions, what is baptism? Why, why did Jesus, why was he baptized? That's what we're going to look at this morning in this great passage. Now, if we're to understand the baptism of Jesus, we do need to understand the larger context of what is taking place here in Matthew chapter 3. And so last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 2, and when we get to Matthew chapter 3, what has happened is about 25 to 30 years have passed. So in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is very young. He's a baby, maybe a toddler. And depending how long they spent in Egypt before they came back to Nazareth, uh, Jesus maybe was up to five years old. Again, around 25 to 30 years have passed. Now we know this because in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke records that Jesus was around 30 years of age when he began his public ministry. Now, it's also important to note that when Jesus begins his public ministry, it's not that he just kind of shows up and starts teaching and healing people. It's better to understand that there was this time of preparation that started with the ministry of John the Baptist. And this ministry of John the Baptist started about a year prior to when Jesus shows up and begins to do his public ministry. Now, who is this character? We might say this strange character, John the Baptizer, maybe more commonly known as John the Baptist. So I want to highlight a few things about him so we kind of get a, a better picture of who this guy is. First of all, we know from the uh, Gospel of Luke that John and Jesus were related. So Jesus' uh, mother is Mary, John's mother is Elizabeth, and they're cousins, and we don't know if they're first cousins, seconds, whatever it may be, but we do know that Jesus and John are relatives. Now, what's kind of interesting to think about, it appears that Mary and Elizabeth had a very close relationship, and so it is very likely that Jesus and John grew up around each other, they hung out, they played, all those type of things. Now, we're given this detail about the food John ate. Now, this uh, food that he ate, the, this locust, the large grasshoppers and honey, couple things are going on here. One, it's indicating that John is most likely poor. Okay? He did not have worldly riches. And also that he lived in the desert. He lived in the wilderness. This is what the, the food is pointing to. Now, this may seem strange to eat grasshoppers and all that. I don't think that's in any of our diets. But I dug into this a little bit this week. I was intrigued by this. And there are many people in some parts of the world that still eat locusts. And so I wanted to show you this on the screen. See that? It's called a little uh, locust stir fry. So if you're uh, hungry for lunch, you can maybe think about that. Now, I don't know if John actually put that together. Maybe he just ate grasshopper a la carte. I'm not quite sure. But again, I did a little research. I want you to know what I'm doing uh, during the week, right? So preparing these sermons. And so I dug into this. And there's a cook. He's, he's doing this even today, right now. And he says that the grasshopper tastes like quail, which made me laugh because that's our way of saying it tastes like what? Chicken. That's right. 
I heard this all the time growing up. So I grew up in a very rural community, uh, similar to uh, some of the kind of small towns around Platte City. And at my church, we had uh, what we called wild game dinners. I don't know if anybody has done that. So we had all sorts of wild animals prepared. And one of my favorites was frog legs, because you know what? It tastes like chicken, all right? And it actually does. So if you're wondering, it, it does. But I'm not going to try the grasshopper, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on that one. And so John, he's this relative of Jesus. He's eating locusts in, in this wild honey. And then we're given this clue about his attire, about the clothes that he wears. Now, this is on purpose. Matthew isn't just kind of making some random comment. He, he has a very theological point he's actually trying to make. And what he is doing with this passage we read from Isaiah and his clothes and what he's eating, he's pointing to the prophet that we find in the Old Testament of Elijah. Elijah was the greatest prophet up to this time before John the Baptist recorded in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 1, we are told that the prophet Elijah was a hairy man and he wore a leather belt, which makes me wonder just how hairy was Elijah if John the Baptist is described as wearing camel's hair and a leather belt, all right? You see the connection here? Very hairy person. So Matthew, he's making this kind of strange comment that John the Baptist looks like Elijah, but also his message is similar to that of Elijah. What we find also in the very last book of the New Testament, the book of Malachi in chapter four, verse five, is that, is that God says this. He says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. This prophecy is given about this messenger that will come and announce that the Messiah is here. But what is so fascinating is that this prophecy in Malachi takes place, and then for 400 years, there's silence. What scholars call the 400 years of silence. What they mean by that is this. The Lord, throughout the history of Israel, continued to send prophet, prophet after prophet. But after Malachi is done proclaiming his message and records this, for 400 years, there is silence. No prophet, no new word from the Lord but then John appears, this one that seems so strange looking, but people that were familiar with their Old Testament, they're thinking, is this Elijah? Is this the one to come? And Jesus, just to make sure that they know that John is this one, he says later in Matthew chapter 11, if you're willing to accept it, he, that is John, is Elijah who was to come. Now, John's message as he's preparing for the Lord is this, it's a message announcing that the kingdom of God is near, that the Messiah is near, that Christ is coming soon. But his message was also that one of judgment and repentance. That word repentance, we kind of throw it around a lot in, in church settings. All it means is to turn. It means you're going this way away from the Lord and you turn, you repent and you go back to him. And so John is preaching the judgment that is going to take place for our sin and that people need to prepare their hearts with the arrival of Christ. And it says in verse 5 of chapter 3, that all the peoples in Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region came to the Jordan River, confessing their sin and to be baptized. 
I mean, what an amazing sight to see. Thousands of people going out to the Jordan River to be baptized in great excitement and anticipation that the Messiah was almost here. And it's with that context we get to verse 13. And we find this interaction that Jesus has with John. Look again at verse 13 with me. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now imagine the scene, thousands of people coming out to be baptized. John is proclaiming that the Messiah is almost here, and then he sees this one that he's been proclaiming. He sees Jesus coming. And there's great excitement as now Jesus, what will he say? What's he going to do? But then that excitement quickly turns to confusion for John. Because here is Jesus, the perfect one, the the sinless one. And the gospel of John, uh, that's a different John than John the Baptist, just to be clear. That was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. But John, this disciple of Jesus, is recording this event. And he says that John the Baptist, when he saw Christ, he proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when he says that, it is very significant. It is loaded with all sorts of meaning. And when he says that here is the Lamb, he's pointing back to what took place in the Old Testament with the the sacrifice of all these lambs. And those lambs that were sacrificed, they had to be uh, without blemish, no defects. Those were the lambs to be offered. And when John declares, behold, here is the Lamb of God, he is saying, here is Jesus, the sinless one, the one with no defect. But again, Jesus goes to him and says, John, I want you to baptize me. And he doesn't get it. He's confused. And maybe you're confused about that. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Again, baptism is this picture of we're going in the water, our sins are being washed away. So why would Jesus Christ, the perfect one, need to be baptized? Well, one is to set an example for us that just as Jesus was baptized, so we are to be baptized. But it goes beyond just setting an example because what Jesus is is doing is identifying with sinners. He is identifying with sinful humanity. Jesus, this one who has no sin. This is amazing to think about, right? No sin, not one time in his life. But yet in this amazing act of love, Jesus identifies with all of us who are so sinful. And we can try to excuse our sin. We can try to block it out, push it away. But yet each of us is dreadfully sinful. We are sinners, but yet Jesus identifies with us. This is why it says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 21, this is Paul writing. He says, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That verse we often uh, equate with the cross. And that is true, that at the cross, Jesus took our sin. It was placed on him. But this begins identifying with sinners, having sin placed on him at Jesus' baptism. This is why in all four Gospels and in the book of Acts, every one of them includes this monumental event. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. They want it to be clear, this is when it begins, but also that Jesus came to this earth, 
His mission was to come to this earth, identify with sinners so that he could bring us salvation. And so Jesus is baptized, one, to set an example for us. But even more than that, to fulfill all righteousness, he identifies with us. So John, I I don't think he's still God at all. Because Jesus said, "Just, just do it, John. And he does it. He consents and he baptizes Jesus. Now in verse verses 13 to 15, we have this interaction between Jesus and John. But when we get to verse 16, the focus now shifts to Jesus and this interaction he has with the other members of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Again, what an amazing scene this must have been. And so at Jesus' baptism, all three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are present. And when Jesus goes down into the water and comes back up, we first find that the Holy Spirit descends on him, and Matthew mentions it was like a dove. And why does Matthew record it this way? There's a couple things I want to draw your attention to. One is that the Spirit is anointing Christ for his public ministry. Christ, so we say Jesus Christ, this is not his last name, but a title. And that that term Christ means the anointed one. Jesus, we find here at his baptism and all the way to the cross, is that Jesus is totally obedient to the will of the Father. The plan of salvation that God the Father has given to his son to fulfill, Jesus does this perfectly. But don't miss this. Jesus was able to do this because he was empowered by the Spirit. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit to teach and to heal. And so don't think it's just kind of the solo endeavor that Jesus embarked on. But God the Father laid out his will for the Son. And the Son walked in this because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is what is taking place at Jesus' baptism. But why mention the dove? What's the significance of this dove? I want you to think back to the Old Testament. Where is there water present? Where is there judgment? Where is there a dove? And what may be coming to your mind is the story of Noah and the flood. And what we find with Noah and the flood is that the the earth is being judged for sin. People are being judged for sin. And the Lord provides this this very large boat, this ark for Noah and his family. And they enter into that ark and they're there for a very long time. But then to check if the waters have begun to recede, Moses takes this dove and he sends it out. And this dove goes all over the place and it comes back and it has nothing, no branch, no grass, nothing in its, in its mouth. And so Noah waits seven days and he sends it out again and it comes back with a little branch. And the importance of that, the significance of that is that this is now a new beginning for Noah and his family. And the connection that Matthew is wanting us to see is that with Jesus, his baptism and he's going to embark on his public ministry, going to the cross, and then his resurrection, is that something new is here. As that dove pointed to in the book of Genesis, this new beginning, this new beginning from judgment, this deliverance, so Jesus is here to bring deliverance from our judgment from sin. 
and that Christ has come, this sinless one. He's descended on Jesus to fulfill that for us. But not only do we find the work of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism, we also hear from God the Father. Because as Jesus comes out of the water, the Spirit descends on him, and then the Father says, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now why is the Father pleased with his Son? He's not even begun his public ministry yet. One of the things we're recorded in the Gospel of Luke is we're given one account in Jesus' life when he's 12 years old, but then we don't, we don't read anything. There's nothing until he's around 30. But yet in that moment, important things were happening. Jesus was being obedient to the law. He was being a good son. He was being a good worker. And so the Father is pleased that he has been so faithful. But also, the Father is declaring who Jesus is. In Matthew's gospel, he's been laying out in each chapter, who is this one, Jesus? And now the Father declares who Jesus is. Because what we find is that this is a very clear allusion to Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. And what you discover when you go to those passages is, is this truth about Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messianic King. That's what we find in Psalm 2 but also that Jesus is the suffering servant as found in Isaiah 42. God the Father is saying that Jesus is the Messiah, my son with whom I am well pleased. And I delight in my son who has been anointed by the spirit to carry out my will for his life, which is a ministry of salvation that comes through suffering. As he completes the work, I have set before him as he goes to the cross. The cross is where he will suffer, where he will die. But for all of those that put their faith in, because Christ will not stay in the grave, he, he rises from the dead and he lives today. And all those that put their faith, their trust in Christ, we are no longer under judgment for our sin. This is the amazing grace and love of God, that he sends his dear and precious son for you and for me. But do you know that when God the Father says this to Jesus, that this is my son with whom I am well pleased, this is not just a description that the Father says for his son. This is relevant for you and for me. This is relevant to our life. You see, for all of those who have repented, who have turned from their sin and, and believed on Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. And this is so hard to fathom. We're so sinful. We, we, we reject God. But yet because of God's love for us, because we've been covered, we've been clothed by the righteousness of Jesus, when he looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He no longer looks at you with judgment, but instead he looks at you and he declares, this is my son. This is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. That's the gospel message that you need to take hold of. Because I think most of us walk around week to week thinking that God is upset with us, that he is angry with us, that we've disappointed him. But again, this is when the gospel has to speak to your everyday life. And in those moments where you think that God is so disappointed in you, you need to go to this passage and say to yourself, when God looks at me, when he looks at you, he says, this is my son, this is my daughter. I'm not angry with you. 
I'm not upset with you. I'm well pleased in you because of what Christ has done. Because Christ identified with us as sinners. We are now his sons and daughters. We are now part of God's family. And so we ask, why was Christ baptized? It's for that, that we can now identify as his sons and daughters. We are now in his family. But the way that you are now in God's family is you have to repent. You have to turn from your sin. You have to trust not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ. That Jesus lived this perfect, sinless life. He went to the cross as your substitute. He died and he rose and he lives today. And when you repent, when you believe, you then take that important next step of obedience by being baptized. Because in baptism, you are proclaiming publicly that you identify with Jesus. You are letting all those that witness this know what is taking place in your heart, that you want them to know what has happened, that you've been buried to your old sinful way of life and you've been raised in newness of life. That's why we say that in the baptism. Yes, it's this picture of our sin being washed away, but it's this picture of our union. It's more than a picture. It's, it's the reality of our union with Jesus, that as he died, so we die. But as he was raised, so we are raised, both spiritually, but one day physically that you don't have to fear death, that you will be with him. You will rise and be given a new glorified body with him for all eternity. And so for you, I would ask, if you've crossed over that line of faith, you've, you've moved from not being a follower of Jesus to being a follower of Christ, your next step is baptism. But I would also say, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, I, I want to say this gently, but give you a kind of a gentle push that if you are a follower of Jesus, but you've never been baptized and take, take that important step that he asks of us. Because again, it's this identity. We, we identify with Christ. We identify with what he's done for us. And I promise you, I know there's nerves. I know there's anxiety, but it is amazing the work that the spirit does as you go through those waters of baptism. So I'd ask just for a moment, if you please bow your head and close your eyes. I want to give you a time of response, a time of invitation. You know, earlier we had two baptisms. I want you to know we are ready if you would like to do that today. We have shirts, we have shorts. Uh, we can take care of that today. It'd be a wonderful experience. But if you're not quite ready, I understand that. But I would ask that if the Spirit is working in your heart right now, don't keep resisting Him. In my own life, I can remember Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, the Spirit working in my life that I knew that I needed to trust Christ, that I needed to turn from my sin, follow Him, and go through the waters of baptism. But Sunday after Sunday for, I think, a year, year and a half, I kept resisting. Why, why would I do this? but that may be you this morning. If the Spirit is so working in your heart, don't miss this opportunity. Again, you may want to go through the waters today, but at the very least, talk with myself, talk with our prayer team. You won't regret it. You will experience that reality that you are now in Christ's family. The Spirit will work in your heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Jesus' baptism. 
Lord, this event in his life that's recorded in so many places. Lord, help us to see the significance of it. But Lord, help us to see your great love that you have for us. That we that are sinners that don't desire you, Lord, in your great love, you sent your son to us to live a perfect life, to die on the cross so that we can now be your sons and your daughters. Lord, help us to understand that great truth. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for who you are, for your great love for us. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen.